This is not the media. This is hell. The military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower was warning people about back in 1960, the one that Marine Major General Smedley Butler famously described as war is a racket way back in 1935. That military-industrial complex has done nothing but grow and grow and grow. Now that the military is privatized, no, they don't do any of their own landscaping or potato peeling anymore like they do in those old movies. They've outsourced all of that. The military's mission is not what it used to be. In fact, the mission is no longer about truth, justice, and the American way. That is, unless you think the American way is profit, and it is because that's what is guiding our military today, and increasingly that's what's causing our wars. In a few minutes, we'll be talking to researcher and veteran Christian Sorensen, author of Understanding the War Industry. Christian's academic background is in translation and international relations. You can follow Christian on Twitter at CP underscore Sorensen. CP underscore Sorensen. Find out more about Christian at IBPoffices.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing, as always, Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what can I say to get you in this cult today? What can I say to get you into this cult today? <laughs> There was an article going around social media yesterday about uh, people losing family and friends to QAnon that was dumb in that it was just some BuzzFeed reporter asking people online, have they had this experience where they've lost loved ones or family members to QAnon? And then they just posted their responses. But some of the responses were interesting, even though it was just a dumb, dumb article. By the way, Alex, uh, happy Equinox. Oh, yeah, I knew that it was the equinox today. Was that the sun or the moon or something? Something. I don't know. Ends in an X, so I don't trust it. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black. This is Hell Trucker's Cap with our logo on display, if you will, which you can see right now by going to our site, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell again. What can I say to get you in this cult today? What can I say to get you in this cult today? By leaving your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can tweet it to us at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either one of us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. But you have to have your answer in by end of show on Thursday, following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth, when we will be announcing our favorite and who wins that new gray on black. This is Hell Trucker's Cap. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Putting people before profit since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible business model, this is hell. You are listening to completely listener-supported radio, live stream, podcast, whatever this is right now. If you want to help us out with our horrible business model, subscribe to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which we stream live every Friday morning at 10 Chicago time with a new monologue from me and a classic interview that is unavailable anywhere else online at this time. If you subscribe now, you get access to over 150 Patreon podcasts, so it's like a whole nother year of 
This Is Hell. On last Friday's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers, we shared an interview we did way back in 2003 with historian Paul Street about the police violence that was taking place at the time in Benton Harbor, Michigan, just across the Indiana border. Yes, protests against police violence didn't start during the pandemic. They've been going on, well, since there's been police. To be honest, I had forgotten all about the Benton Harbor uprising because there's been so many uprisings against police violence, but it's worth revisiting, and you can you can revisit that moment in time by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Also, during last week's podcast, I imagined what it would be like if President Trump won re-election, what it would be like if Joe Biden is the next president, and what either supporters will do when they lose. And guess what? Every one of those scenarios is frightening, and one of them is going to happen in only a couple of months. But the only way you can hear that report on an uprising you may have forgotten, like me, and the terrifying prospects of our electoral future, by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to thank our newest Patreon subscribers, including JP, Christian, Gregory, Samuel, and Francesco, who writes to us, Hello, dears of hell. As a general nobody in hell, I would like to thank you all, Chuck, Alex, and the whole crew of contributors, for your consistent collective commitment to looking to spare into the ma- to hmm, to looking to sp- deeper into the machinations that metastasize the catastrophic average of civilization, specifically the death cult of U.S. empire and its capitalist instruments of war and domination of lands and imaginations. Although, yes, this is hell, somehow you brilliantly shed light into the dark corners of a necrotizing normal of society, which in turn helps me grow a deeper appreciation and commitment to nurturing and to being the better, less hellish world we all deserve. My becoming a supporting member on Patreon is years overdue. Although these words are inadequate, all the same, I apologize. I had the immense pleasure of meeting you all a few years back in 2016, days after the Democratic National Committee sabotaged the first Bernie Sanders campaign for president. When that happened, I kind of imagined a massive collective plummet into a cesspool of hopelessness because of malevolent moderates. Everywhere I looked, the sign said, leave. So, at the time, living in Portland, Oregon, I left Portland, the most liberal, hate-filled town I've ever known, and drove across the country with my few remaining things crammed into a car. Along the way, I stopped here and there to bid adieu to friends scattered across the states like a slew of comrade jewels. During the drive on a Wednesday, I got pulled over somewhere in Iowa. The cop was just sizing me up and curious about my well-being, I'm sure. He held me for about an hour, almost ensuring that I would miss my first and only ever experience of office hours at Carrie's Lounge. But the carceral state and its goons be damned. Speeding like a madman in hell, I made it for the last little bit of office hours. In little more than an hour or so, I chatted with the most amazing mix of local supporters of This Is Hell. I met Chuck and realized, wow, he's really an amazing regular guy who doesn't much like injustice and who's hella funny. Other than these broad strokes, I don't remember specific topics, but goddamn, I was astonished by the degree of intellectual depth and curiosity in all those conversations with This Is Hell's fans there. I fell at home for a moment, something horribly difficult for me to feel in the divine 
divided states of amnesia, a.k.a. the USA. Of course, things did get a little sloppy after a few pints. I'm a bit of a lightweight. I could ramble on and on, but in short, I had a great time with all of you at Carrie's Lounge. Then I ate some great Pakistani food down the street, immediately got food poisoning, was sick in my car most of the night, and when I woke up groggy and with piercing aches in my guts, I continued to on towards a life of wandering away, which included stints as a private chef for wankers on land and at sea, and more beautifully as the cook volunteer in the Mediterranean with a sea rescue organization that continues to do civilization triage. I also worked for some environmental NGOs before finally nestling into a small town where I'm farming a little plot and trying to nurture a food co-op social center into being where people can share stories and synergies to support struggles for justice. COVID has, of course, challenged the social element critical to birthing this space. Still, fingers crossed, I remember mentioning at Carrie's that the U.S. had the worst degree of general class consciousness I had ever encountered in my travels. I need to correct this. Europe sucks, too. Civilization is indeed hell. Take care. Revel and share Francesco. Thank you, Francesco. I remember that night clearly. A listener drives all the way from Portland, Oregon on his way out of the States, drops by office hours. That's just not something you forget. It was great meeting you, Francesco, and we are honored to have you now as one of our new Patreon patrons. We are finally actually emptying the rest of our email bag from this summer where you can you can send us anything if you want. You know, you can send emails to us at chuck at this is hell.com, Alex at this is hell.com. You can tweet us at this is hell radio, Facebook message us, or you can just mail us stuff. And this is hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And if you do any of those things, we'll likely read your letter, your email, your tweet, your Facebook post on the air. Fred sent a guest suggestion. Thought maybe you guys could get Michael Sandel on This Is Hell to discuss the ideas in his new book, The Tyranny of Merit. Cheers, Fred. First of all, Fred, I first read that as The Tyranny of Meat. I was interested in that book, too, but The Tyranny of Merit sounds way better. Fred sends a link to an interview with the author Michael Sandel at The Guardian, which explains the philosopher believes the liberal left's pursuit of meritocracy has betrayed the working classes. His new book argues for a politics centered on dignity. So, yeah, that sounds great, uh, and thanks, Fred. We've always wanted to have someone on to trash the idea of this being a meritocracy, or that it should be. So, yeah, we're going to follow up on Michael Sandel. Again, the name of the book is The Tyranny of Merit. Phil also sent a quick suggestion. Hi, guys. I would like to suggest Thomas Frank to discuss his new book, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. Thanks for reminding us, Phil, uh, as Tom, Tom has been on our show to discuss each and every one of his books, except for the first one, which I think was published before we ever aired a show, I'm pretty sure. So, yeah, Tom will be back on This Is Hell for his new book as well, so be looking for the return of Thomas Frank to This Is Hell. Fabio has many questions for us, which he sent via Facebook. Fabio asks, does Chuck actually read four entire books a week? Even if it's two books and two articles, how does he do it? Speed reading? Does he need any reading accessories to help with being blind and broke and gap-toothed? What if Alex schedules four interviews? They all happen to have 500-page books. Does Alex get in trouble? All right, I can answer all of your questions, Fabio. No, kinda, no, and probably. 
And one last thing to wrap up this summer's listener feedback, email bag, whatever the segment is called in late Back in late July, we got an email asking uh, that we interview a Chicago alderman. It's, you know, what we call our city council members. Uh, They wanted us to talk to one of our aldermen about the progressive caucus within city council and the successes they have had electorally and what it may mean for Chicago or any municipality that elects those from the social democratic or democratic socialist side of things. Now, we have a guidance here on guideline here on This Is Hell, which is we do not have anyone on from big politics or big business because they are the only ones seemingly with access to the mainstream media as all their news outlets base their coverage on the perspective of political and business leaders, excluding those with real expertise and instead focusing on what gets votes and what makes money. So we asked listeners... If we should have politicians on the show, if they are challenging the status quo and could be moving the United States into a more democratic direction, as in direct democracy. While some pointed out that we have had politicians on the show in the past, including Dennis Kucinich, Member of Parliament George Galloway, hell, we just spoke with a former foreign minister of Ecuador, only one listener wrote in to say, yes, we should have politicians on the show. Every other listener gave a resounding no, which is good because I hate talking to politicians. That's listener feedback, and this is hell. You can email us, direct message us via Twitter, or send something via Facebook, and we will likely share your thoughts on air. This is hell. Coming up, how the United States war industry works and why it works that way. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what can I get? What can I say to get you into this cult today? What can I say to get you in this cult today? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins our new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap, which you can see right now, by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail, as I told you, on Facebook. Tweet it to us, email it to us, but you have to have it in by the end of the show Thursday following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth when we will be announcing this week's winner as we do each and every week. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. The United States has been at war since shortly after the attacks of 9-11 in 2001, and the end of those wars seems nowhere in sight, which makes you wonder if these wars will ever end. Here to help us understand why our wars now do seem endless, researcher and veteran Christian Sorensen is author of Understanding the War Industry. Welcome to This Is Hell, Christian. My good man, thank you for having me. You write that at least $6.4 trillion has been allocated to post-9-11 U.S. homeland security and wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, uh, through to fiscal year 2020. Capitol Hill spent roughly $1.25 trillion in 2019 on war-related costs. The department asks for and receives an enormous budget every year while simultaneously cooking the books. Before I, I've got 60 questions written down for you, and before I even get to the first one I have written down, mm. I, I, Christian, can people even name all the countries where the United States is at war right now. Do we know? How much do we know where the U.S. is at war right now? No, we don't know. Uh, fortunately, there are some really good investigative journalists out there. For example, Nick Terse, uh, who works with Tom Dispatch and The Nation and other uh, organizations, he covers uh, special operations mm, throughout Africa Command, so AFRICOM. 
And I think, according to his latest estimates, it's 53 countries out of, what, 56 in Africa um, where special operations forces are operating. And we are currently in military conflicts in, well, let's look. We have Colombia. We have, all the way on the other side of the world, Philippines, and we're still there. There is a Marine and Special Operations contingent there. Then the uh, the ones that get the headlines whenever corporate media eventually or ever talks about war, you have Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen. Uh, we're supporting the Emiratis and the Saudis and bombing the ever-living daylights out of Yemen uh, to great corporate profit, mind you, because the weapons manufacturers uh, bombing is one of the uh, bombs and ordnance in general is one of the very profitable sectors of war, business sectors of war. There's Somalia, there's Niger, Burkina Faso, Nigeria, uh, you know, the list, the list goes on, Chad, and uh, of course we destroyed Libya under the Obama administration in 2011, and that is still ongoing because once you destroy a country, then you have the pretext afterwards to go in and try to, you know, humanitarian aid and rescue and all sorts of uh, other militarized operations. So long story short, we, uh, we do not know. Uh, and I actually doubt the Pentagon even knows. The Pentagon is such a... Uh, behemoth, a conglomerate of different uh, fiefdoms, uh, fiefdoms, however you pronounce that. I don't, uh, I doubt it even has a, uh, a coherent idea of um, its own military and paramilitary operations uh, around the world. And that's frightening as hell. How good of an idea do we have about the amount of money that is spent on the military? And who actually does know? If we don't, do at least our elected representatives have a grasp on the amount of money being spent on war? Uh, two parts to that question. No, the elected officials don't know. The, so the job of the congressional side of the military-industrial congressional complex is to fund the whole racket and then to basically shut up. And when they do open their mouths, their job is to regurgitate the talking points fed to them by uh, lobbyists, by uh, pressure groups, and we can get into pressure groups later on. Um, I would say that uh, the best way to determine or for the general public to understand the cost of war is to go to Brown University's cost of war project. They do an excellent job. The $6.4 trillion and running figure is from, uh, that you cited earlier is from their uh, academic work. And I would also point to organizations like the Center for International Policy, the Institute for Peace Studies, and uh, Project on Government Oversight, POGO. There's a uh, team of Bill, uh, I think Bill Hartung and Mandy Smithberger who do excellent job over at POGO. So if anybody who's listening really wants to get an idea of the cost of war, go to Brown University's Cost of War Project and go over to POGO, uh, the pro uh, Project on Government Oversight. They do excellent work over there. So we don't have a clear understanding of how many wars we are in. We don't have a clear understanding of the amount of money that we do spend on war. To what extent do you think that lack of understanding leads to support for the military and support for defense budgets? Or would it make any difference whatsoever if you told Americans that the defense budget was twice what they thought and that we were in, at war and, and military actions in over 50 countries around the world? Would that make any difference when it comes to support for the uh, defense budget, as it's called? So poll after poll does indicate that if you phrase the question as follows, uh, do you support bringing the troops home, then most people support bringing the troops home. But if you couch it in one of industry's preferred terms, like uh, do you um, support fighting terrorists or do you support um, pursuing, you know, 
uh, you know, restraining Vladimir Putin or any of these uh, excuses that industry uses and that the military-industrial congressional triangle in general uses in order to uh, garrison the globe, then people, because they live in a very propagandized country, um, are at a loss to push back in an educated manner on these things. And I don't blame them. I want to stress that I don't blame the U.S. working class at all. The U.S. working class is beat up, uh, you know, half, uh, even before the pandemic, half of the country was poor or low income. And, you know, they're just trying to make ends meet. The average Joe, the average Jane out there doesn't have the time um, to actually try to try to understand this stuff. And uh, that's the real criminal thing. So, you know, Congress, uh, I like to say that the military industrial congressional triangle is insulated from the American people because, you know, we don't have a direct say in how the military operates. We don't have a direct say in how industry operates. Obviously, corporations are beasts. They hold enormous sway in our society and they are very opaque institutions. But we should, in theory, have the ability to affect the congressional side of the military industrial congressional triangle. Yet we don't. Before Congress even gets to Capitol Hill, Industry has devised a whole lot of, uh, you know, uh, roadblocks, a whole lot of uh, ways to influence Capitol Hill. So as soon as somebody steps, as soon as a congressperson steps on Capitol Hill, the lobbyists swarm. You know, the last count I saw was something like two dozen or between a dozen and two dozen lobbyists per every uh, member of Congress. And that's just obscene. So they can't even breathe once they get on Capitol Hill. The lobbyists function as basically writing legislation. And that's just not just for, you know, big oil, uh, fossil fuel. It's also for the, for the war industry itself. But, um, you know, before they even get on Capitol Hill, they have campaign finance. You have the, uh, the war corporations funding, you know, your campaign. Say you, Chuck, and Alex, uh, for the red team and the blue team, are vying for a congressional district. I, as the war corporation, fund both of you, whoever gets into office, uh, owes me, owes me big time, and I'm already in. I'm cozy with you. So you have, you have campaign finance, you have lobbying, which we know, but then there are a, a variety of other ways, um, such as pressure groups and, um, you know, using the quote-unquote jobs card that industry plays very well in order to uh, confine uh, the options and basically corrupt the system before the system even gets off, uh, uh, before Congress even, you know, shows up for work. And you talk about how massive this military-industrial congressional complex is and mm-hmm. how much of an impact it has on different uh, sectors of industry, including one you point out uh, directly is construction. So to what yeah. extent is there any loyalty or support for the military because, amongst working-class people, because the military is either directly or indirectly employing them to what degree do they have our support because the military is our boss yeah and that's the that's the really um the unfortunate thing um you know the working class is, is swamped with uh propaganda and the you know industry knows what it's doing it has the best you know pr apparatus known to known to humanity and so like you said there are many profitable sectors of war and construction is one of them you know the um uh, at my last tally, the Pentagon is the single largest um, employer of construction workers in the United States. You can't, um, you know, build a military and industrial footprint throughout the United States and even throughout the world without employing, excuse me, without employing uh, numerous construction firms. And so industry 
some of the favorite construction firms with uh, within the uh, U.S. war industry are AECOM, Tetra Tech, uh, Jacobs, and um, RQ Construction, which is down in um, southwest California. And, um, yeah, so they build up the, uh, the domestic and international footprint. And AECOM and Jacobs also sell a variety of consulting services and are increasingly becoming full-blown war corporations themselves. You know, they started out as multinational, giant um, project management and engineering firms, and then they turn into, uh, they know where the money is. I mean, if you're a corporation, you know, mor- morals aside, if you're a corporation, you know where the money is in uh, the money in the United States, it's in the war budget. So you go there. And um, that's where the uh, where the cash is. And unfortunately, the you know the working class is so um, beat up and uh, abused and neglected that when jobs come along, however paltry, however menial, they um, you know they and I don't blame them. They take it. If you have a construction job in your um, district or in your hometown or in the even the state next door, uh, you commute there because it it'll put food on your on your table. I just want to briefly mention other profitable sectors of war because construction is very important, but it's not nearly the only one. There's um, base operations support services, which is everything to run an installation. Base operations support services or boss, uh, once, you know, the average uh, soldier, sailor, airman, and marine carried out these tasks. It was something that, uh, you know, take out the trash or uh, mow the lawn by the front gate or, you know, clean a window. But now corporations are doing that. So you'll increasingly see more and more contracts for BOSS uh, on U.S. installations and in you know all the installations overseas uh, since we've garrisoned the globe. Propaganda, public relations, recruitment, retention, all of these are done not by the Pentagon, but by corporations. Um, increasingly, you'll see advisory and assistance contracts, uh, consulting, business, all sorts of management, and uh, it gets into a larger problem because th- these are these are especially you know areas of consulting and office work and advisory and business and management, these are areas that a general, an admiral should be doing. Now, if you have generals and admirals, three and four stars, who can't even do the basics of their job, then what are they doing? You know, what are they doing? And once a corporation gets in there, it finds more excuses because profit is its bottom line. Profit is its number one overall motivating factor to then find more excuses, hey, you know, we gotta we gotta do this for this office, we gotta do this for that office, we gotta do this for this DOD unit. And it just expands and expands. Um, and then lastly I'll just say um, information technology is the biggest um, sector of war. It's the most profitable sector of war. Uh, we like to think, you know, going about our day to the extent that we think of war that maybe bullets or bombs or missiles or, you know, tanks, the things that actually um, comprise war overseas are the biggest uh, sectors of war. But no, the to business, the business sectors of war are information technology. That's that's really a, uh, a huge category. You'll see it uh, again and again, not just in number of contracts divvied out, but in dollar amounts. Um, and then I'll just quickly rattle off special operations forces, uh, the training and the um, you know, goods and services, the gear that they use is uh, a major profitable sector of war, anti-ballistic missiles, nuclear weaponry, anything to do with space. The entire space sector is militarized, is corporatized. And, um, yeah, then you get into more obscure categories that are being pushed during the current great co- great power competition, such as machine learning, artificial intelligence, hypersonics, etc. So there's no real area 
except for maybe infantry left that um, is not uh, entirely or partially corporatized. So if corporations, if the military has outsourced all this stuff, they've pushed it all Mm -hmm. off on the private sector, you're a veteran. So what do you do with all your time? If you're not peeling potatoes, if you're not cutting the lawn, if you're not doing all of the things to make the base run, and now you've outsourced all of that, have they all become super soldiers who are able to spend all of their time just on training and uh, discussing strategy? So what do soldiers do with their time now? Sure, sure. So while there is a lot of downtime, um, there's always more uh, training to be done, and the corporations take up you know, a lot of that. Uh, there was a recent, I don't remember where the piece was, it was on one of these um, you know, veteran websites, and the idea was that uh, they, ta- they calculated, they tallied up all of the training requirements that it takes just to uh, deploy, and that there's just more training than there is uh, hours in the, in the duty day. So it's basically, um, you know, there's always more stuff to do. But uh, when you're stateside, when you're not training, there is a lot of downtime in the, in the military. There's, there's a ton of, um, uh, you know, just idle time. That's not to say they're not doing anything, but there's a ton of idle time. I was reading a, an article the other day um, about SCIFs, which are secure compartmented uh, information facilities. And they're one of the major things that construction firms uh, build for the uh, corporatized intelligence apparatus which is part of the overall military-industrial congressional complex. And um, I've been in a few SCIFs myself over the years, and I was amazed. You know, you think SCIFs, SCIFs are, are marketed and SCIFs are, SCIFs are hyped up as, ooh, they're, they're secret facilities where, you know, you can conduct, uh, you know, top-secret intelligence, you know, uh, work. And, yes, to a degree that's true. But in my experience, when I've been in SCIFs, there's just a lot of people sitting around and shooting the breeze. It's no different than any other, you know, office environment. So um, th- that's, that's part one to answer your question. Part two is how industry views the troops. The troops at best are just numbers, at best are just numbers. Uh, at, uh, but in fact, they are um, vessels, vessels through which to route goods and services. So the goal of industry is not, just, is not to, there's a balance there. It's not just to take over all the jobs the troops used to do. They still want some troops because through troops, you can route goods and services. Troops still have to drive the vehicles, the land vehicles that industry sells to the Pentagon for use overseas. Troops still have to you know, steer the ship. Troops still have to operate other platforms such as drones. So there needs to be a, you know, a bare base minimum of troops uh, in uniform. And uh, that's, that's part two. There's, uh, there's a balance there. Troops are vessels through which to route goods and services. And bases at home and overseas are avenues through which to route goods and services. People always ask, why do we have, you know, countless installations? Depending on how you count, depending on how you measure an installation, a facility, a camp, a post, a fort, at home or overseas, you can um, tally over 800 to 1,000 facilities, installations overseas. So people ask, why, why are we garrisoning the globe? Why? Why do we have so many bases overseas, you know? And the answer is, because you can route an enormous amount of goods and services through those bases, those installations. It's all about profit. You need the privatized um, you know, mercenaries. You need them guarding the gate. You need the new electronic system you know, guarding the perimeter and um, you know, monitoring everything. You need the base operations support services, the corporation that runs, functionally runs the base. Then you have all of the ordnance, all the weaponry, all the goods and services that flow through that base. And, uh, yeah, it's really the greatest racket on earth. 
You just mentioned mercenaries. Uh, why? Uh, how much do we have an understanding of how many mercenaries are currently engaged with the U.S. military? Do even our elected representatives know? And is our choice mercenaries or we're going to have to start the draft if we're going to continue these kind of military projects that we have all over the world? So mercenaries grease, mercenaries sort of keep the, they grease the wheels of the MIC. They keep the, the, the racket going. Here's why. There have been uh, an enormous number of, and you can find this on the Cost of War website, I don't remember the current tallies, but thousands of mercenaries, armed mercenaries, have died in the wars since 9-11. And thousands of uniformed troops have died in the wars since 9-11. Now, the key to mercenaries is they don't make the headlines. When a mercenary dies, yes, it's tragic. It's not as tragic as the hundreds of thousands of civilians dying overseas, but it is tragic nonetheless. When a mercenary dies, that tally doesn't go into the overall troop death tally. So while we've had several thousand troops dying, we'd have about double that number, and it would be a much greater scandal if the mercenaries were to essentially bloody the ranks as well. So while mercenary deaths, excuse me, mercenary deaths are indeed tragic, they don't add to and would otherwise add to the overall uh, number of troops dying. You know, we'd be approaching or topping 10,000 dead overall in troops if the troops were the ones absorbing those mercenary deaths. So, the, so one of the keys is you, you don't have the draft and you don't want the draft uh, because the mercenaries sort of keep the death toll low. They're the ones absorbing the, the excess death. And in any, any deployment location, especially in the Middle East, you'll have uh, more mercenaries um, more corporate personnel than um, U.S. troops. And I also want to say you don't want the draft from a corporate or a ruling class, a ruling class perspective, because if you do have that draft, then your sons and daughters, the super wealthy, will inevitably um, you know, be called up. And that is, that is completely uh, unacceptable to the ruling class. They do not want to uh, sacrifice any blood, sweat, or tears for these wars. The ruling class is, uh, is profiting from the wars, and that's the way uh, it should be from their perspective. So is the military then, right now, a class project? Do we not criticize capitalism? Do we not want to discuss any kind of class division or class war in this country because, partly, the military is itself a class project? That's a great question. Uh, if we're going to end the wars... Excuse me. If we're going to end the wars, we're going to have to unite as a working class. Based on class, uh, most of the enlisted and even a good chunk of the officer corps come from the U.S. working class. It is not in their class interest to go overseas and fight the working class of another country or, in the case of Afghanistan and Vietnam, the peasantry of another country. That is not in your class interest. So class awareness is key. And um, one of the reasons why class awareness uh, doesn't really get on, the, uh, on people's radar, is, I mean, there's, aside from all the propaganda, is basically you have a, um, a lot of um, inducements, a lot of, um, hey, you come and join the military, you'll have uh, you know, your loans repaid, you'll have educational opportunity, You'll have, um, you know, economic opportunity. You'll have health care. There are all these, uh, you'll have a signing bonus in many cases. So there's all these economic incentives that, um, 
get people to join up. And unfortunately, in our um, current economic situation, with the working class beat up, jobs shipped overseas to because capital can go across borders in search of the cheapest labor possible, and automation, increasing automation, the U.S. working class is um, you know scrambling for any opportunity they can get to uh, ascend the socioeconomic ladder. And the military, at least, is one of the few routes remaining. And that's um, you know it's a sad state of affairs. Very sad state of affairs. You also write about the increase in suicides amongst militaries and service members. How much is that suicide rate due to that kind of downtime that uh, servicemen and women have today because of the privatization of the military? Uh, that's, That's impossible for me to say. Excuse me. That's impossible for me to say. Um, I don't know. I can only speculate. I would just say that uh, when it comes to military suicides, a lot of people come home. uh, The war is, well, first and foremost, I need to frame this properly. The, The saddest part about these wars is the civilian deaths, hundreds and thousands overseas dying. Okay, that is first and foremost the most tragic thing, um, and in some, and in some cases, you know, it's over a million. I mean, a million people have, according to many estimates, died since 2003 in Iraq alone as a result of our uh, occupation and destruction of the country based on, um, you know, lies. So that's the that's the greatest tragedy. The suicides are also obviously a huge, uh, huge tragedy. And uh, I believe I have no empirical evidence to back this up, but I believe uh, anecdotally from talking to my uh, veteran peers that, you know, you come home and you start, uh, you know, questioning, why was I over there? Did I have to be over there? What was I doing? Geez, Louise, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I saw that. It it is. it is, uh, you know, troops are not just killed overseas. Troops are not just maimed and come back and have to deal with that. But the, the psychological toll is something that uh, we are going to have to uh, address collectively as a country moving forward because it, it, really, is, um, it really is one of the great tragedies. And um, if, um, if Congress actually cared, they would, uh, you know, they, first of all, there'd be no homeless veterans on the streets. There would be no... Um, you know, difficulties with the Veterans Administration. The VA does, you know, great work and, you know, bless the people who work there. But um, yeah, by many accounts, they're underfunded, understaffed. And, uh, you know, if there's an extra $3 billion, you know, for hypersonic weapons, you know, the last fiscal year, if there's an extra, you know, $13 billion for for Northrop Grumman to develop the next generation of uh, useless nuclear weapons, that we actually can't use to kill us all, um, then there should be, everything should be fully funded. And, uh, you know, not just in the military-related budgets, but also in, you know, interior, commerce, uh, labor, uh, health and human services, housing and urban development, and all other departments. When it comes to that lack of support for veterans when they do come home, how much is that a sign of disloyalty by the military itself for not taking care of veterans. Does that kind of disloyalty towards veterans undermine morale of current service members? Yeah. Um, yeah, to a great degree, it, 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 I imagine it does. I mean, you know, the people who, the U.S. working class is not stupid. I mean, they really are, uh, they're uh, uh, an intuitive, bright group of uh, people, and they understand, you know, at least in, you know, intuitively how the how the system works um, when they're not, you know, drowning in the propaganda, and um, when they're able to break free of the indoctrination that they go through, 
in base training and as part of the groupthink that is uh, many military units, they realize that <clears throat> at the end of the day, they're just numbers to um, to the generals and admirals who uh, purportedly run the show. And they're definitely just numbers to the civilians who run the various secretary, undersecretary, deputy undersecretary, assistant deputy undersecretary offices in the Pentagon. And those civilians come from largely the war industry. They'll come from the C-suite of a war corporation. They will go and run one of the undersecretary offices for a few years in the Pentagon, uh, push industry's you know, dreams, industry's goals while in there, and then go back, cycle back into um, the C-suite at a higher executive position and leverage while they're there, again, all of the knowledge they just gained on the inside. Um, the, there's no evidence that I've seen uh, since I started looking at this stuff in, uh, I guess, 2013, of any um, leader who actually demonstrably cares for the troops, whether that leader is um, one who is occupying one of the undersecretary offices or secretary offices or a three- or four-star general. Because those generals and admirals, they retire. And, you know, back in the day, let's say, I don't know, 1930, if you were a mm, high-ranking officer, if you were a general and admiral, you retire, then you'd go and you'd play golf or you'd go spend time with your family. You'd do something like that. But now the generals and admirals retire and they go and work, you know, they'll show up a few months later working uh, at the very war corporations that are profiting from this whole thing. If you're really good at schmoozing and networking, then you end up on the board of directors as a former general or a former admiral. Um, if you're not so good, but you're still valuable, obviously you can be in any of the executive positions, vice president, anything like that. Um, but you can also be a lobbyist. You can be a consultant. You can uh, you can work in a variety of positions for the for the war corporations. And so people see that veterans see that, and they understand the nature of the beast. They say, look, these. These characters, uh, they talk a good talk. You know, they'll say, you know, we care about the troops. They'll spout the requisite support the troops uh, boilerplate. But at the end of the day, they uh, they don't. There's no. I've seen no evidence that they that they care for the troops. We are speaking with researcher and veteran Christian Sorensen, who is author of Understanding the War Industry. Christian's academic background is in translation and international relations. You can find out more about Christian at LB offices.com. You can follow him on Twitter at CP underscore Sorensen. You write no statistic or prose can accurately convey the grief felt in families, Iraqi, U.S., Afghan, or any nationality that have been torn apart by these elective wars. Nor is there an official count of the rapes committed by U.S. troops, nor are these public figures regarding the pallets of cash D.C. flew into Iraq and then lost track of, nor are there tallies regarding the degradation and humiliation suffered by people detained in Iraq without judicial process. Is it necessary to tolerate the kind of cruelty that a service member faces while they are in training or an environment that may cause that kind of cruelty? Is that necessary? in order to keep the United States or any nation that has a military safe and secure? Does a military trained to go to war and kill need to have the cruel environment that might cause acts of inhumanity? You mean like um, when, say, Marines are indoctrinated in uh, boot camp to uh, 
view the enemy as um, you know less than human and are you know berated and yelled at in order to get them to uh, not question anything and just sort of um, you know follow orders at the drop of a hat, that type of thing. Exactly. Uh, is, yeah. is that necessary to be good soldiers and to win right. wars, which is what militaries are supposed to do? Right. Yeah. I mean, um, if you're actually going to fight and win, you do. Let's just let's let's assume just for a second, and this is not true, but let's just assume for a second that the the post 9/11 wars are necessary. Let's let's assume that they are um, actually wars of defense. Let's assume all of that. They're not, but let's assume it. Yeah, you you need a professional military needs to uh, train an enlisted corps that will follow orders and not question authority. Yes, absolutely. But part of the problem is you are then creating, uh, especially in some of these uh, infantry units and obviously in the um, more uh, shooter special operations units at SOCOM, you're creating people who are, to one degree or another, professional killers. And they do not and they cannot see the enemy as human. You have to buy into all of the uh, demonization and the propaganda uh, that the other, the, you know, at least in the post-9-11 wars, the Arab world, the Muslims, the um, uh, now increasingly the Iranians, you have to see them as less than human. You have to see them as, uh, you know, bad guys. But then you get, like you said and like you alluded to, you get people who um, may or may not have been, um, you know, uh, mentally disturbed going into the military, but then they certainly uh, have some sort of scars left, uh, some sort of trauma uh, left from basic training uh, or advanced individual training and uh, other schools along the way. And then after that, you get into war zones and you are just, uh, you know, you are in a, a very difficult situation. And that's the situation that the U.S. ruling class, which is profiting from the wars, have put you in. You are now overseas. You are in, let's say, Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan or anywhere, and you, uh, yeah, you see the enemy as less than human. And then it does lead to rapes, and not just. So there are rapes, um, uh, particularly in the early occupation of Iraq. The Associated Press in May of 2009, I think it was May 23rd, they talked about it um, in good detail. The Washington Post uh, in July, I think it was 3rd, 2006, talked about it. So there are um, there documented rapes on that, but. Recently, The Intercept uh, had an article about uh, rapes, but it was uh, troop on troop. U.S., uh, it was actually U.S., uh, reportedly U.S. Navy SEALs, uh, one or more, with sexual assault and even rape of a fellow sailor, a female sailor. And this occurred, I believe, or reportedly occurred, I believe, in Syria in uh, maybe 2015, 2016. So it's... Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a really uh, awful situation for all involved, particularly the victims. And one of the things that you point out is there's this concept that we might be able to make the military green so it wouldn't have as much of an impact on the environment, as much of an impact on climate change. You write that corporate America is in charge when it comes to energy. So how does that relationship with corporate America, what does that mean for any chance that the military could become more green and less dependent upon fossil fuels? Because you have it as Peerless Technology Corporation, runs much of the Air Force's energy policy, CDM right. Federal Programs Corporation, leads the Navy's public works business line. So do those relationships mean that we cannot make the military 
green. Yeah, yeah, you can't. Um, short answer is you can't. Long answer is <clears throat> you can't. Um, there are a few technologies within the military that are ostensibly, quote-unquote, green. You have aircraft carriers that are fueled by uh, nuclear reactors. Okay, all right, we'll put that aside. And you have some submarines that also have nuclear propulsion. But everything else, and I mean everything else, is fossil fuel-based. And uh, the Cost of War Project actually also had a study regarding the uh, military being the single largest institutional polluter when it comes to uh, fossil fuels, when it comes to carbon, uh, of any organization in the world. Yet, the, um, this whole greening the military trend that you see in recent contracts is really important to point out, and um, I'm really happy that you did, because corporations will pitch to the Pentagon. They'll say, hey, you know, we can green your base, or we can uh, green your this or your that, your installation, your facility, whatever. But you can't green an organization that by design inherently plunders, snoops on, destroys, and kills using fossil fuel-based platforms. You can't green that. You can't green that. There's no, there's no uh, greening that, that, whole, um, that whole complex. You simply can't. It's a, it's a gimmick. It's a marketing gimmick. So you can also look at military construction. Military construction is unf unsustainable infrastructure. It's not environmentally friendly. It's not green. You can't green that. You can't green any of this stuff. It's a, you know, it, it puts, it uh, establishes arrays of hundreds of installations whose primary purpose is to destroy. And nevertheless, you have the MIC using these green visions as a, as a popular misdirection. You even see prominent uh, Congress people like Senator Elizabeth Warren, who tweeted in May 2019 that we don't have to choose between a green military and an effective one. My plan will improve our service members' readiness and safety and achieve cost savings for the American taxpayer. Together, we can fly, fight climate change and win. But that's simply, you can't do that. You can't do that. The, the beast thrives on fossil fuel. And often, one can argue, with the invasion of Iraq and the increasing focus on the uh, Niger Delta, is focused on, and even troops in uh, northeast Syria guarding oil fields, is focused on benefiting corporate America, particularly the fossil fuel industry. So, um, and then there, there are Pentagon contracts that, that point to this. So on 20 March uh, 2019, you have uh, a contract to build uh, fuel facilities at Shaw Air Force Base, South Carolina. Now, you, you can't say you're greening the military while at the same time building fossil fuel facilities at one of the premier U.S military installations stateside. You can't. You likewise, you have uh, in May and July 2019, uh, the Pentagon put um, contracts out there or signed contracts with corporate America to implement energy, quote, energy conservation measures at Camp Lejeune, uh, which is a military uh, Marine Corps facility in North Carolina. Now, the, the goal of these is to sort of put in superficial um, uh, quote unquote green infrastructure, you know, maybe, uh, you know, data software that monitors you know, energy use or friendly LED lighting or anything like that. But you can't consume your way toward a, a green planet, let alone a, uh, a green military. And there's no emphasis on reducing uh, your overall uh, energy consumption. 
So, no, it, it, this green nonsense is a misdirection that plays well with um, corporate-inclined politicians and um, generals and admirals who are looking to put it on their officer performance reports. But it, it has no actual um, uh, environmentally friendly, on-the-ground results. When it comes to private sector getting involved with the military, privatization of the military, if you will, the idea was to get private industry to do it because they could do it more effectively and efficiently and cost effectively, especially. Is there any way to know if the private sector is providing services the military once provided for itself at a far less cost, but still being far more efficient in the way that they actually perform those duties. Are they doing the job of uh, the soldiers cheaper and better than the GIs used to? Because that was what we were promised. Right, right. And they'll, yeah, they'll pitch it and say, part of the argument is that every troop, every, every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine requires um, health care costs, through the TRICARE system and all sorts of, you know, food costs and this and that. And what they'll say, how, how corporations will pitch it to the Pentagon is, oh, you don't have to pay for that because you'll have one less soldier, sailor, or airman, marine doing the task that we, industry, now do at, quote, unquote, a fraction of the price. But it never, and the, con- the, the contracts do not, uh, you know, bear that out. They're, the contracts are <laughs> more expensive and more expensive and more expensive over the years. And once you let a corporation in, then the corporation expands. And so you'll have uh, a good or a service. So uh, a corporation will follow up sale of a good or a service with an enormous amount of uh, follow-on contracts. And so you'll have, say you sell uh, a gizmo. You say you're a giant corporation, you just sold 1,000 gizmos to uh, the U.S. military establishment. You then follow that up with some absurd billable categories over the next, say, one to five years. And these categories can include configuration management, contractor logistics services, uh, touch labor, cybersecurity enhancements, data. We'll look after all the data. We, the corporation, will look after all the data. You with Pentagon, don't worry about this stuff. Uh, Depot-level repair, diagnosis. Uh, We'll develop capabilities. We will uh, develop, qualify, and integrate all of your systems. We will overhaul your engine. We will give you engineering change proposals, and then you will buy into those. We will uh, bill you for engineering support, for failure reporting, for machining, welding, painting, fabrication. It just the list goes on and on and on. For site activation, for spares, for technical services, for testing, for evaluation, for training, for performance-based logistics, for operational security. It goes on and on. So, no. The corporation is profiting in, to such an extent it, is, it boggles the mind. It, it, the corporation costs far more than you know, when Private Snuffy was doing that job for nothing. There's so much more to this book. I just want to make sure our audience understands. Uh, uh, the toxicity at military bases and the impact that it has on soldiers and how people should be aware of that when they're saying that they support the troops. The way in which uh, they now outsource food procurement for the military in which food is sent in instead of using local farmers, which undermines the uh, counterinsurgency field manual, section 324 that says that can undermine the ability to win hearts and minds. You talk about how uh, the proponents of national security are actually undermine our national security and even 
even and there's this futures command a war industry achieved an entire command dedicated to producing new unnecessary toys for optional wars that seems like it it's the industry is able to create not only the demand for the weapons but the yeah. supply for the weapons. So it is just an amazing book, Christian, and I really appreciate you being on the show. But we have one Thank last you, question God. for you, and as sure. always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. We have been speaking with researcher and veteran Christian Sorensen, author of Understanding the War Industry, and you will once you read this book. So our question from hell for you is, will the United States ever not be at war again is the forever war forever will the u.s ever experience peace again yes absolutely um you know i'm the permanent uh pessimist but i'm very optimistic in this regard and here's why the u.s working class will unite the u.s working class will unite and end the wars one way or another they will address the military side the industry side and the congressional side at the same time the U.S. working class knows that it is not in their material or psychological or monetary benefit to go overseas and oppress the working class of another country. And one way to do this is to, well, seize the means of production, putting it frankly. Um, when the U.S. working class, whether you're at a missile plant in Tucson or a land vehicle plant in Lima, Ohio, you seize the means of production you work with local use commu uh, committees, you work with the neighborhoods, you work to produce, not for war, but for need, for human need, for local, regional, national, and then international human need. And that is one of the key ways that we will end these wars. Wow, I, I envy your optimism. <laughs> Christian, and, 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 yeah, I envy the optimism of a guy who just wrote a book about understanding the war industry. Now, that's a very optimistic book, by the way. Christian, I really appreciate you being on the show with us. This is really a great work, and I think everybody should have it on their bookshelves. Again, you can follow Christian on Twitter at CP underscore Sorensen, and you can find out more about Christian at lbpoffices.com. IBP. 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 IBP offices.com. Sorry. Yeah. sorry. Thank you so much for being on the show, Christian. Thank you, Chuck and Alex. Thank you. Thank you. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money. So you do the math. This is hell. IBPoffices.com. I hate the fact that Ariel doesn't, the Ariel font doesn't put the tops and the bottoms on eyes. This week's question from Mel is, what can I say to get you in this cult today? Our favorite wins the new gray on black. This is Hell Trucker's Cap, which you can see by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. The winner will be announced after Jeff Dorchin delivers the moment of truth at the end of Thursday's show. Alex, do you have more answer, or do you have answers to this week's question? Oh, me? yeah, we got a bunch. And uh, sorry if uh, your mic picked up me yelling every time you mentioned class. <laughs> made me <laughs> you so, did, Made yeah. me so happy to hear, especially when you said that the working class would seize the means of production. <laughs> I looked at you skeptically. Yeah. Oh, no, way. I was cheering for that one. <laughs> this week's question from Hell is, what can I say to get you in this cult today? What can I say to get you into this cult Today, Jack B says, join now. All your troubles will melt away. Aww. Nathan R. says, free shrooms. <laughs> uh, and, uh, get ready for drug reference. We're learning a lot about our audience on this one. Krimsky K. says, opium, free for you. Are there a lot of tracksuit and gym shoe <laughs> jokes as well? Uh, Thomas K. says, you don't have to say anything, my sweet. I hear your thought messages loud and clear. <laughs> Yikes. Heath C. says... Kofifi. God, this is like 10 years ago that that Jesus. happened. Warren L. says, so much trunk space. John C. says, our temples are solar powered. Zach N. says, free condoms. 
You still have to wear condoms in this cult? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what can I say to put you in this cult today? Jesse W. says, literally anything. I love cults. <laughs> Timothy P. says, we will bring potatoes back to Taco Bell. <laughs> oh, gross. Uh, Wally R. says, call in the next 10 minutes and you'll get a second afterlife for free. Sweet. Aaron B. says, you had me at what? Patricia O. I'm kind of worried about our audience after this. <laughs> Patricia O. says, it'll all be worth it in the end. Dan K. says, I won't have to do yoga anymore. <laughs> Shane M says, directed by Alexandro Jodorowsky. MGB says, if this cult devoted to the worship of cats and Satan, I'm already in it. What can I say to put you in this cult today? Mar H says, I am not worthy. David R says, just uh, tell me to take a loyalty oath and then get a tattoo signifying my commitment not to masturbate. And you should punch me repeatedly until I'm ready to, until I'm able to recite inane pop culture trivia. <laughs> Alexandra H says, free pizza. Dan O says. Not joining my cult is a vote for Trump. <laughs> uh, Corey G says, there's some perverted stuff, but we don't like overdo it or anything. <laughs> uh, Jeremy T says, not joining imposes the immediate threat of eternal damnation. It's worked for centuries. What can I say to put you in this cult today? Kevin O says, we have several flavors of Kool-Aid this time. <laughs> Scott W says, how are their cookies? John K says, it's funded by George Soros, the Epstein Estate, and the Clinton Foundation with free pizza. Sweet. Benjamin C. says, what comment are we going to hitch a ride on? Mike M. says, dude, we are not the bad white sheep people. <laughs> Paulo S. says, you look amazing. What's your secret? <laughs> what can I say to put you in this cult today? Adam A. says, got a hangover cure? <laughs> Noah S. says, we offer free health care. Joe G. says, hello. <laughs> Ed F. says, you don't have to listen to the bitching of partisan politics ever again. A couple more. What can I say to put you in this cult today? Miriam F.'s B says, we stay at least six feet away from each other and wear masks. <laughs> Aaron D says, it's like a sexier Nixium. Is that how you actually pronounce that? The real cult? Nexium. Nexium. Mm. With supplements that blow Herbalife away. Plus, you get two weeks a year at our Acapulco Resort if you commit today. I well, swear I was prescribed Nexium at one point. <laughs> Christian H says, either free love or free snacks will do it. <laughs> Christy says, free masks, hand gel, and a Netflix subscription. <laughs> Andrea T says, "Oh, valorous knight, go fight for, uh, go and fight for the right, and battle all the villains that be. But oh, when you do, what will happen to you? Thank God, I won't be here to see. Hail, knight of the woeful countenance, knight of the woeful countenance, fair to the foe that quail at the sight." <laughs> Fabiol says, "We are not like the other cults; we don't take corporate pack money." <laughs> Baradem says, "Sign up now, and the cyanide-laced Kool-Aid is half off." And finally, Mark AC says. Love me for who I really am. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. And we are looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. So we're looking for people to work on the board, and soon we'll be talking to or we'll be asking for uh, contributions from you when it comes to other work that can be done remotely so you don't actually have to be here in studio. But I'll tell you all about that tomorrow as we are running up against the clock and we do we have uh, received some responses from listeners who are interested in that in that position and we will be telling you we'll be sharing those thoughts from our listeners with you on tomorrow's show hey Alex who is on tomorrow's show uh, tomorrow's show uh, time shifted four hours uh, so remember tomorrow's show is going to be on at 2 p.m. Central 12 p.m. Pacific because we got Abram Lustgarden uh, a Reporter, I have been bugging for four years to come on the show. It finally worked. Uh, he's going to be on at 2 p.m. to talk about his new book, Climate Ch or to his new uh, ProPublica piece, Climate Change Will Force a New American Migration. Yeah, it's really an amazing piece and incredibly frightening because 
guess what? Uh, you can't live on the, sh the coast anymore. So everybody's going to be coming running towards where we are here on the fresh coast, the best coast. And uh, meanwhile, we'll be having horrible weather, extreme weather, and we'll be having our own problems here, including all of a sudden hundreds of thousands, if not millions of more people. Uh, we're going to be great until that pipeline that they're going to probably put under here <laughs> bursts. And uh, then uh, there goes the fresh water. Yeah, that pipeline that's number five that's going underneath the Mackinac Bridge, that, that thing's got to go. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Christian Sorensen, today's guest. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>